One of the things that I really firmly believe is start. And the way to start is share your idea. And I just want to tell you that when we shared our idea for Birchbox, almost everybody was like, that's a bad idea. <laughs> From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. That's Katia Beauchamp, the CEO of Birchbox. She joined me in New York for a live podcast taping at the 10th annual International Women's Day Forum. Before Katya started her own company, she worked in the world of finance, quickly realized that even though she was moving up in the industry, it wasn't challenging her. I don't want to just be in a job where I put my head down, no one wants to hear any of my ideas or thoughts for five years to 10 years, and then someone will let me have an idea. Since co-founding Birchbox, she's grown the startup into one of the largest subscription e-commerce companies in the world. But it hasn't always been smooth sailing. Katya says making it through the highs and lows has helped her live in the moment. And that, in itself, has had major benefits for her business. When you are present and not thinking of the inevitability of the future or your fear of the future, you have so much to work with. When you're there fully to think about a challenge you're facing, you'd be shocked how many ideas you have. And now, here's my conversation with Katia Beauchamp. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here and so excited to be interviewed by you. Well, we'll, we'll like do it. have a lot to do right now, right? We'll do our best and then uh, we'll take some questions also from the audience before we wrap up. But Birchbox has been around for 10 years. I remember when it launched, so most of the people in the room probably know what it is. Um, but for those in our listening audience who might not, give us the 30-second elevator pitch. Sure. So Birchbox is the best way to discover products that are going to change your beauty routine and your grooming routine every day. We're very focused on creating an experience for consumers who are not obsessed with beauty to help them consume like someone who really does obsess over beauty because for most of us we don't care enough we don't have the time um, and it's a lot to navigate so you can sign up you can become a subscriber we will send you a personalized box of samples and then information and content on how to use it and you can buy anything that you discover through bar trucks so were you obsessed with beauty? No. It's so funny. <laughs> I have to like keep reminding my team that 10 years in, I happen to know a lot now. But no, I mean, I was 27 when my co-founder and I came up with the idea. And frankly, we were in business school thinking, we're smart. Why does this category feel so hard? And also, I have no desire to suddenly become obsessed with this category. I just want to know what a serum is, when you use it, when you need to start, you know, how to find things that just make me feel like myself but better. I don't want to transform. I don't want to contour. I don't want to wake up looking one way and then like go to work looking a whole other. I just, I want to feel good when I buy things. Right? I want to feel like I'm going to use them and not have a bunch of stuff that just sits there mocking me, making me <laughs> feel like an uninformed consumer and not knowing how to spend my discretionary money. So that was honestly the motivation. We were, we were feeling like we can empower consumers to be smart about how they deploy their dollars. Frankly, some prestige product is better than mass product. And you end up spending so much at the grocery store and at the drugstore trying $6 shampoos that you aren't realizing you could have bought a $25 bottle that you loved and used to the bottom that let your hair air dry exactly the way you wanted it. And that's the kind of things that we're trying to help people do and get rid of the waste of these 
you know, half used everything. Yeah, the drawer in my in my uh, bathroom yeah. that's filled of things that I might have picked up off the the shelf in the store. So, what is one beauty product that you discovered? Okay, so. I just have to say something. No one seems to know how to moisturize their skin. And unfortunately, people call everything a moisturizer and everything a serum. Let me just explain something to you. It's science. You have to put water on your skin first, and water actually puts moisture back in your skin. If you're willing to use chemicals, hyaluronic acid is your best friend. It is the only thing that can actually moisturize your skin. And then to seal it all in, you put heavier things, like creams that have oils in them or an oil. And that is what keeps all of these things that you just put on inside. And it also helps whatever you have stay there. So the order is like wateriest to the oiliest. And I highly recommend putting hyaluronic acid as the first step. I feel like we really learned something here. Mission right? accomplished. <laughs> uh, I want to take a step back, as we often do in these podcasts, and tell us a little bit about where you're from. Where did you grow up? Sure. So I am from Texas. I was born in Austin, but I really grew up in El Paso, Texas, which is a border town in West Texas, um, with my single mom and my brother. And I grew up kind of in the desert experiencing El Paso and then going in the summers to where my dad lived which is Germany, and then to where my, his parents lived, which is Greece. So I, the only parts of the world I saw growing up were the desert, El Paso, predominantly Hispanic. My mom is Mexican. Um, and then going to Germany and Greece and seeing a totally different way of existing. Those are my two touch points until I went to college up in the Northeast and I saw that you can't really just see the horizon. for. I mean, it was just a whole very different experience. Did you always know you wanted to leave? Or I'm from a really small town in, in North Dakota, so I feel like I kind of resonate with your story a little yeah. bit, where I kind of was always ready to explore the world a, a little bit from the kind of small farming town that I grew up in. Yeah, I mean, I wanted I wanted something very ambitious, and I didn't know what that was when I was really little. I just said, I want to be president of the United States. That seems like the top, right? And so I I wanted to <laughs> shooting just, high. I appreciate that. I didn't know what that meant, but I you know I did. I I was hungry to try hard things. Um, I was hungry to know what I was capable of, and I didn't know what that meant, you know, as an 18-year-old, as a 20-year-old, but I started to put myself into those situations, and frankly, when I was, when I had my first job in finance, I was in commercial real estate investment banking. I felt like I was progressing in my career, but not, not, it wasn't so hard to progress. It wasn't so hard to, like, do well, and I was like, I don't want to just be in a job where I put my head down, no one wants to hear any of my ideas or thoughts mm. for five years to 10 years, and then someone will let me have an idea. <laughs> you know, and that's what, it, that's what it started to feel like. So then I applied to business school. Again, no idea about entrepreneurship and really not on my radar, just open and thinking about what's next. And then I found entrepreneurship and was it was this moment of realizing that all I wanted to do was meet myself and just know what I was capable of and that this would force me to meet myself. And that sounds good, trust me, harsh realities, um, knowing what you're capable of. But it was you know, there that I kind of realized that that was something I was so drawn to. Two questions kind of from your answer there, in my opinion. One, you kind of, you're in commercial real estate, kind of investing finance, very male dominated. Yeah. How did you navigate that? I think oftentimes we all are in the rooms where, and I can definitely attest to this, you're the only female. And, you know, how did you kind of navigate that as a younger person? I mean, poorly. 
I navigated it poorly. I, I tried to speak up and, you know, was told like, it really wasn't my place to have a perspective. I was frustrated and unhappy. I looked around and felt that, you know, there was so much complacency with this idea that you would have a token woman analyst. And it had, you know, it was very frustrating. And I don't think that I noticed it as being necessarily a problem of being a female at the time, because I was in denial. I went to Vassar undergrad, right? We like, we did it. <laughs> you know, that's how it felt. I'm like, Great. More women are in college. Like there are these milestones people have been touting for decades being like, great, we got to vote. And most of us are getting educated. Woo! And I, you know, was young and naive and thought that that must be it. And it's later in reflecting on it that I realize, you know, it is really hard to navigate your career when you don't have anyone you're looking to that has anything to do with you. I always thought it used to be age, right? I was like, oh, it's just because we're young. Yes. But, and then I think as you get a little bit yeah. older in perspective, you're like, oh, no, it's actually because I'm female and young. Mm -hmm. Both of those factors really it's play both. into it. And it's, a lot of it is because, you know, people talk about, like, where deals get done, but also where, like, you know, promotions get done. It's not in the office, right? It's not happening when in these places, like in these rooms that we're invited to. It's happening in these more casual settings. It's happening in these places that it would maybe be weird for us to be and awkward for us to be where people are actually developing relationships, where their boss is becoming more open to them being, you know, earlier in their career and accelerating faster, or people are developing relationships to strike deals um, in very casual ways. So it's those things that you reflect on after and you're like, wow, that is the difference between what we have access to and what we don't. So you go to business school, which is also a lot of relationship building, right? Yes, I, all, totally. A couple of my siblings went, and I mean, I think it was less of like, wh how did you do in your, you know, finance class, and more like, what what trip are you taking together? Mm -hmm. How did you did you approach that differently than maybe you had in in the job world, kind of the, in the in the education space? I mean, I approached it, I think everything I approach is a lot of energy, a lot of opti optimism. This is going to be like the best experience ever and I need to maximize. So I very much just focused on trying to do it all, like, you know, take the classes very seriously, make the relationships and try to make the friends the way I I am not, I like to go to bed kind of early, so. <laughs> you weren't going to like that HBS party. You I know? did go, but I would always be gone fast. <laughs> I, I would go, I just don't. <clears throat> I like the morning. I can't help it. That's who I am. Uh, so talk about one of the things I think women often feel like we can get kind of pigeonholed in different categories, right? I mean, you chose to kind of go into the beauty space. Yeah. Did you ever worry yeah, about that? Totally. I remember sitting in meetings um, in the early days of Birchbox and everything, you know, from a business and metric perspective was just so going in the right direction and feeling like no matter what I said about like, LTV or gross margin or TAM, all anyone heard was, I love lip gloss and I love <laughs> mascara. And I, and people, and you know, reflected back to me when I'm talking about this industry and that 2% is on the internet would be like, well, my wife doesn't use beauty. And I was, first of all, like, you might want to check in because <laughs> she's certainly using something, right? Um, but second of all, I mean, what a strange way to talk about disruption and about changing a pattern or behavior or the way marketing dollars are flowing in a Molt, like $500 billion industry that is the fastest growing mature category in this world where 2% of sales are on the internet. Like what a strange, what a strange thing to say. 
right? Um, so yeah, that definitely was something I was frustrated by. And also just immediately everyone assuming that I loved beauty and that was my passion was really hard to, you know, for me to combat because I, I wanted to reflect that, you know, my passion is that consumers have discretionary dollars and we should feel very good about when we spend it. Like we have rights as consumers, and that is to be happy when we spend our money because we don't need something. And the fact that nobody seemed to care about my dollars and about my happiness in a category that seems to be so ubiquitous bothered me. So when you started 10 years ago, kind of as you were saying, kind of the market of what was happening on the internet, much so, so small compared yes. to what it is today. Super novel concept. But over time, you've also had to ad adapt, right? I mean, the, the, the marketplace has shifted so much. Then the company has endured layoffs, some tougher times. Talk about kind of how you navigated that. Yeah, I mean, I think just like everything, this has all been a learning experience. And I think the first time you you hit headwind and you think something's going to be really insurmountable. I mean, frankly, when it felt like tailwind and everybody thought everything was great, it felt insane trying to navigate it. But the first time you actually hit headwind, I think you expect the worst. Your mindset immediately goes to a place of fear and also a place of defeat. Um, but then you get on the other side and you realize that you've just built this really incredible muscle around recognizing that when something happens, there's not an inevitability to it taking you out. There's much more of a chance that you just got stronger and that you're going to be able to face something in a different way. And once you can recognize that post something happening, it becomes a lot easier to see it when it's happening. So then when you see something happening that you're really sure is going to be the end of you, <laughs> um, you start to say like, well, it's never been the end of me. I seem to have continued to like navigated this and found a way to really you know, get things right um, for the consumer, get things right for the team, get things right for this opportunity. So it's shifting the mindset instead of seeing the hard thing as conquering you, recognizing that it doesn't, you always get on the other side. And starting to feel that in the moment makes it feel less dramatic and makes it feel very navigable. I like to say it allows you to stay present in your body. I know that sounds so cheesy. But when you are present and not thinking of the inevitability of the future or your fear of the future, you have so much to work with. When you're there fully to think about a challenge you're facing, you'd be shocked how many ideas you have and about how many places you go to like ways that you can navigate something. But when you're constantly afraid of the future or reliving something terrible from the past, you don't, you're not totally present to even think about it. Of course you feel frazzled. Of course you feel like it won't be okay. You don't have all of you to face it. So I think, I honestly think just being at something for 10 years, having the privilege of that, and then developing those muscles around hard things end up being the best things. Once you believe that, then you don't see it when it comes as this horrible thing. You see it as an ally. You're like, wow, this is going to serve me. <laughs> It's like, I, you know, I'm going to figure out how this is going to serve me, but I know it will. Um, it just changes the tenor of it all. So it's a bit of a mindset thing. And I think that the mindset allows you to have different conversations with your investors, with your stakeholders, because you're not panicked, because you don't see it as drama. You're, you show the certainty of improving customer economics. You show facts about the business, about how you're navigating and operating it well. And then you also acknowledge, you know, there are things that you've either learned or there are externalities you didn't anticipate and you have all of you to have 
a very sensible conversation. It feels very brave, right? You're really facing these kind of these issues kind of head on. Yeah, I mean, it it feels like a life worth living, right? It feels in, exciting and engaging to try to push the boundaries of what you thought you could weather, um, and it feels so much better to you know, actually in those moments of challenges, not feel, like not let yourself go to the despair, um, but to feel in the moment how okay things are, right? The worst case scenario for me, like with Birchbox, if Birchbox goes away, like everything's okay. You know, we'll all be fine. I will, you know, have miss, I will miss it. I'm sure consumers would miss it, but knowing that everything is really okay and that you are okay, is very powerful, mm -hmm. um, and eventually it doesn't end up feeling so brave. It just feels logical. Last year, Birchbox partnered with Walgreens. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about how that came about. What the, the you know kind of the next evolution of the company is? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of us as consumers are seeing that the online space is just becoming really crowded. And that started to bring a lot of questions to me as somebody who really wants to you know, continue to build this business, invest in growth, find this customer. Where do you go and find this customer? And for us in particular, because we are online-based but not um, focused on consumers who are online looking for beauty, online looking for like, how do I create these transformations or how do I you know, really engage in this category? It's even more challenging. So we started thinking about what are new and creative ways where we can meet this customer where they are. Um, and frankly, a lot of consumers who are less engaged with beauty do have their engagement happen more in mass in like drugstores and in grocery. So that was the first piece of it. And then finding and meeting um, the Walgreens Boots team at a really interesting time when Walgreens had acquired Boots. Boots is much more known in the UK for beauty, much more balanced between like beauty and pharmacy than Walgreens is here. And the management team from Boots is really who stayed on. So they were so passionate about reestablishing beauty within Walgreens that they really um, wanted a way of like kind of jolting that into their customer experience and things just happened at the right time you know people often you know congratulate you for starting a business and for having an idea and I and I like to say like those things you know do matter thinking through a concept but timing just to be clear is about everything in it. Like finding someone at the right moment where they're thinking about something and it really, and you can kind of meld your pitch to be really in line with what they're looking for has so much to do with creating new opportunities and value. Talk a little bit about personal life, work life. I don't like to say work-life balance because I, I don't even have children and I don't think there's a balance. I think there's different seasons of your life where yes. priorities kind of totally. take shape, but you do have children. So many. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I have four I have four kids. That's the best thing I ever did. Um, I'm exploring this like weird moment as a human, as a woman, where I just realized that I have been pregnant or nursing for half of my career <laughs> and I'm not right now. And I am like, wait, what? I don't have to like hook myself up to something in between these talks or, you know, on this airplane. And it's very freeing and bizarre um, as 
as just an experience to be like living right now. I think the most important thing that I care about for my team and for the world is that when we spend our days at work, we have we we have high expectations for that, right? That we believe we deserve to spend our days surrounded by things that inspire us, surrounded by humans who care about, you know, our development, that there is a reciprocity that the company would think that they can be demanding of you and you could be demanding of it. Um, you know, that's what I think about trying to create at Birchbox for the teams and for the people who work there so that it doesn't feel like you're so depleted because it's such a one-sided agreement um, that you need to, like, escape it, right? That rather, like, we, like, the idea that, you know, you're only working right now during the hours in the office is done, right? I need people to be inspired on their weekends when they have amazing customer experiences that are discretionary and bring those ideas to work. That's work, right? Being open to thinking about this and being inspired. So I really, you know, I think it's it's very difficult to expect that you can turn it off, but I also think that I take a responsibility in making work worthwhile and not necessarily seeing that, again, as being like over-indexing towards having all the drinks or all the crazy things. It's having a reciprocal relationship with your employees saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put something in front of you that's impossible, just to be clear, right? I need you to invent reality every day because that's, what, that's the rules of the game now. But you get to come to me and talk about your the skills you want to acquire, the dreams you have for how your career progresses, like the things that you're frustrated by that you you feel like you don't have context for your job, you know, mm. and and creating that reciprocity, I think, just removes this need to think about, you know, getting out and getting fulfilled from all of these other places, and instead says like, how do you blend? How do you exist in all of these ways? And feeling joy in what you do. It definitely permeates into your home life, right? <laughs> um, and then you don't feel like you're, again, you're there and you're not there. Yeah, I mean, so, it's, when you get out of the bad job, then you realize how it infected all the rest of the other parts of your life, right? Yeah. I, I want to ask, so I think in, in the same vein, women can often be our own worst critics, um, whether it's how we're trying to get it all done or discounting where we actually, are we up for the next job? Are we up for what, what's being put in front of us? How... How do you not fall into those traps as you've had challenges that have occurred in your career? Oh, I do. I do. You're supposed to be superhuman. Just like all of you, I source my value externally in my worst moments, but I know that that's a fallacy. I know it's a fallacy. When I, when I catch myself needing someone else's validation and needing someone else to tell me like what I'm capable of, I, I'm human. Of course I go there. Of course I worry about what all of you think about me and what the press will write about me. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't serve me to exist to project something that you take, right? It serves me to feel like I'm living my life in a way that I respect and in a life and and pursuing hard things and staying in the game and and the kind of leader I would like to work for that I would like my kids to work for I'm the kind of person that I would want to be friends with and that you know I want my kids to be friends with like those are the things that I really try to come back to and focus on and I think practicing putting your head there when you see yourself going to sourcing your value externally it's just practice I mean we're so hardwired to source our value that way and what and you know, if you notice it and you pay attention and you're like, wow, I'm just giving all of this power to someone else. One thing that I that really has helped me do this is 
meeting someone I really respect, right? And, and that I think really highly of, and then having this opportunity to have a conversation with them. And then thinking like, do they know everything? <laughs> like, are they like exactly sure how to navigate all of the questions that are in front of them for their companies, for their lives? Like, you know, absolutely not. And, and the ones that I end up being so impressed by, the ones that I walk away feeling like, wow, I'm so inspired by this leader, are the ones who have the humility to own it. Yeah. Right? None of us know. Like the, the only difference is some of us are willing to stay in the game and face that we don't know and make hard decisions and we don't know exactly what they're going to lead to. And some of us don't want that. Before we leave, I'm going to ask you a, a really quick question because I think it's always important to have a tangible takeaway when you come and you're so inspired um, by hearing folks like yourself speak. Can you give us one thing for women or the people in this audience who are interested in entrepreneurship that they can do in the coming days that that has helped you when you look back on your last 10 years? I'd say, you know, if you're interested, especially if you have a specific idea, one of the things that I really firmly believe is start. And the way to start is share your idea. Um, and I just want to tell you that when we shared our idea for Birchbox, almost everybody was like, that's a bad idea. <laughs> like, this stuff is free. You know, I mean, almost everybody said that, but it was really informative. And, and this idea of like being stealth and protecting, um, frankly, you know, there's a lot of really good ideas out there. Execution is the hardest thing, and you have to put one foot in front of the other to start. And so if you keep your idea like confidential because you're worried someone's going to copy it, that is going to not serve you. Um, copying, you know, of course, if you have a great idea, could absolutely happen, but execution is really hard. So just know that. And, and it's really hard because it's very hard to stay in the game when things get really hard. So I would just encourage you to talk about it, to get feedback, and to not let feedback that might you know, question your idea completely shut the door to your idea. All right. Well, Katya, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Let's give her a round. Thank you. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Politico Audio. Special thanks to Bob Ald for his help recording in New York. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us and leave a review. It helps others find our podcast. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 